I don't know where Ryan is, but you can start the shot clock now. They were talking about being done on time, but uh, the last 10 minutes doesn't count towards me. <laughs> uh, before, before we get started this morning, there is uh, something that's been heavy on my heart that I just want to uh, kind of confess to you guys. I guess in a way it's my own Marty Spilkes story. Uh, it's not Spilkes though, it's me. Uh, but how many people love to learn from other people's mistakes? I, I love it. I, I love those opportunities. So this morning, hopefully, you can learn from a mistake that I made. Yesterday, I had an opportunity between two ministries, or, or two ministry opportunities, if you will. Uh, one of them that had been planned for a few months, be able to be a part of something that would help share the gospel to see people get saved. And just recently, within the last couple of weeks, another opportunity arose that, that would have happened yesterday, that did happen yesterday, uh, to be there for a family who had gone through a great, difficult time. And uh, I never really put a whole lot of thought in it. I've already made my commitment weeks ago. I already made my decision. I was going to go be a part of this evangelistic thing and didn't think twice about it. In fact, to be honest with you, I don't recall even praying about it. But I can tell you, since last night and this morning, I made a mistake. Definitely did. I made a mistake, and I can admit that. Uh, probably should have changed some schedule things around. Probably should have been there for that family and ministered to them. And so I want you to learn from a mistake that I made. <laughs> I believe as leaders, we need to be transparent, and we need to admit when, when we do things wrong and, and make a mistake. And so take some time. Sometimes it's easy to get wrapped up. Hey, I got two ministry opportunities. I can't go wrong, right? Uh, both of them are ministry. It'll be great. It'll work out. And after the fact, you realize that maybe you didn't make the right decision. So just don't take those for granted. Make sure you take time to go before the Lord on it. And that has absolutely nothing to do with my message today, but just something that I, I just felt that I needed to get off of my heart. And so this morning, uh, uh, today I want to talk about something that in the church we don't almost ever talk about. And uh, people can make arguments and say, well, why would we need to talk about that? Um, we're not going there. If we're children of God, we have nothing to worry about. And that is true. Uh, however, as Christians, uh, I think something that would help us in evangelism, it would help us to be soul winners if we had the proper understanding of hell. If we could realize how horrible this place is going to be, if we can realize that there are people that are going to spend eternity there, I think it would change our uh, way of doing things. It would, it would change maybe our motives. It would change maybe our desire to share the gospel. And so I want to start out with a quote this morning a well-known theologian. Uh, some may like him, some may not, but uh, the, the issue is not what he does or says, but it's what he said right here. And it says, It's a very remarkable fact that no inspired preacher of whom we have had any record ever uttered such terrible words considering the destiny of the lost as our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus talked about hell an awful lot. It's something that we don't think about. It's something that we don't necessarily study, but it was obviously something that was very important to Jesus. Now, he also talked about the kingdom of heaven a lot, and, and that was something that, that we love to talk about. We love to talk about the good things and, and the blessings and that come along with it. But today, I want to really examine what the Word says about hell. Now, this is by no means a, a, you know, a complete... There, there's not enough time today to be able to really dive into this, but I'm going to give a great overview, I hope. Um, but you think about it today, some of the different ideas that people have uh, when it comes to, to hell. I've heard... Some people say, many of you probably heard people say, you know, I'd rather party with my friends in hell than go to heaven and be with some of the people that I've met that call themselves Christians. 
Or you think about some of the song lyrics and some of the songs. It, you know, there's a couple songwriters that, you know, really they got it right. You know, there's a song that talks about the highway to hell. But then there's also a, a song that talks about the stairway to heaven. And you think about that picture. I mean, it, the Bible tells us that, that wide is the gate that leads to destruction. But narrow is the door that leads to eternal life. It's true. They may not have even realized it, but they, they were, in a sense, preaching part of the gospel. Then we have some, some Christians, if you will, some people who proclaim Christianity but, but teach false gospels. People like, uh, uh, there's a guy, Rob Bell, who wrote a book basically dismissing hell, saying that it, was, uh, you know, it wasn't a reality, it was, it was something, um, a metaphor, you know, and that in the end, God would save all of humanity. But if we really look at Scripture, if we really look at the Word of God, it does not say that. It's, it's a great idea. It's a wonderful thought to feel all lovey-dovey. And, of course, everybody's going to be saved. But the reality is, is that's not true. That's not what the Word of God says. And there's different religions that have different ideas. Seventh-day Adventists, they, they believe in a hell, but they also believe that it's just for a short time, that people will be annihilated. They'll cease to exist. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says it's something that's for eternity. We look at Jehovah Witnesses that don't even believe in hell. They believe that it's a pagan teaching, that there is no such thing as hell, that when you die on this earth, you just cease to exist, and you miss out on paradise. I had a run-in with those, those people this week. <laughs> Came to my door, actually, while I was preparing for this message. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and, and so... Uh, you know, I, I just, it was two, two older ladies that came up, and I, I said hello to them as, at my screen door. And so we got some, some information, some brochures we'd love to give you. And I said, that's all right, you just hold on to your brochures. Uh, I, I know a lot about you guys, and I know what you teach and what you believe, and it's contrary to the Word of God. And, uh, you know, so I said, I, I, I don't want to waste your time. I don't want to take any of your literature. And uh, I said, I'm a Christian. I'm a born-again Christian. Jesus Christ is my personal Lord and Savior. And uh, I, I know for a fact that he is the only way that we can be saved. So the lady turned around and shot back at me, and she goes, Well, then maybe you should be out sharing the gospel like we do going door to door. It's like, Lord, you just put that one right on a tee for me right there. <laughs> I said, well, ma'am, I, I tried to be as cordial as I possibly could at this point. I said, well, ma'am, uh, you don't know me, but uh, I'm an evangelist, and for eight years I've traveled around the world preaching the gospel and sharing the love of Christ with people. So, yeah, I don't go door to door, uh, simply because you guys have pretty much ruined that for Christians. <laughs> because people think if we're coming to the door, we must be Jehovah Witnesses, and they close the door on us. So I want to thank you for that, but, uh, you know, and then, then she started to get angry because I really wouldn't let her get a word in edgewise. I just kept talking, and she stopped me, and, and she said, you won't even let us talk. I said, hey, you came to my door. You, 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 this is my time. You came to my door. I didn't come to you. You came to me. And she said, well, sir, if that's the case, then we can write your address down, and we just won't come back. And she jotted down, 4702. So we'll see if they're true to what they say. It, it could be a good thing, but it... It also misses out on an opportunity to share the gospel. But the whole point in all of this is, is there's so many different ideas. You think about even Catholics, something that we deal with a lot here in Wisconsin, that believe once you die, hey, you get a second chance. You get to go to purgatory and you get to kind of work out your salvation and try to uh, earn points. 
to be able to go to heaven. It's just not true. And so the main text that I want to read from today is found in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. And uh, there's some, some disagreement, if you will, on whether this is a true story or whether this is a parable. The people who say this is a true story would tell you that when Jesus speaks in parables, he never uses people's real names. He always talks about there was a man or there was a person, where in here we will see that he uses the name of Lazarus. Uh, but then there's also other people that would say, hey, you know what, this is bunched in with a group of other parables, and certainly it has to be a parable. The bottom line is it doesn't matter whether you believe it's a real story or whether it's a parable. Parables we know we can draw truths from that are real, that God uses parables, he uses stories to teach us principles about certain subjects, and that's what he did here. So this is Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in the matter bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to, to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, they, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So we see this account that Jesus is telling uh, about the afterlife, about hell, about Hades. And I want to go over some of these different words. The word hell uh, is found 23 times in the King James Bible. I uh, was uh, wasn't able to uh, find any statistics for different versions, and I just frankly don't have enough time in a day to go through all the different versions and draw it out. But the word hell in the Greek language is represented by three different terms. The first one that's used 10 times out of those 23 is Hades. The second one that is represented in the Greek language is called Gehenna, and that is represented 12 times out of those 23. And then Peter uses one time, he uses the word Tartarus in 2 Peter 3, which also is a representative of hell. Now, Tartarus in that aspect, I won't spend much time on that today, because that was a place for fallen angels. It was for incarcerated demons. Are all demons incarcerated? No. Uh, but some of them are. And that was used to Taurus. Uh, actually, if you go to Greek mythology, it was something that they would be able to understand very clearly as Peter was, was giving them instruction. They would be able to understand that word to Taurus. And that's the only place we see it used. And so we see Hades, we see Gehenna. There's also uh, the Hebrew words for it, Sheol, which I'm not going to get into much of the history of the Hebrew because I am not well versed in that. 
Uh, I'm going to talk to one of our brothers in, in uh, Beth Messiah, Keith Brofsky, who's very, very well-versed from what I've heard in that, and I'd love to have some great discussions, because this can be turned into a great series if, uh, if I knew enough. But today I'm just going to tell you what I know. And so we look at this word Hades, we look at Sheol, and we look at this portion of Scripture. There's a lot of things that we can draw from this story that tell us about hell. And so we look at this, we see that all of the senses are intact. When you look at this man who's crying out to Father Abraham, uh, it says that he's in torment. He can see because he can see Abraham and Lazarus off in the distance. We can see all of the five senses in this. So what does that tell us? When you are in hell or when you go to Hades, you will have your senses. You will feel everything. You will see everything. You will have your mind. You will remember your life. You will remember the things that you did. You will realize that there are people that are in heaven. You may even be able to see those people that are in heaven And you will not be able to go there. You want to talk about torment. (laughs) Not only that you're in a fiery furnace, not not only are you in flames, but you can realize all these things. You will have your mind, your emotion, and your wills. Your will will still be intact. Listen, it's not a place that any of us want to be. The other word that's used is Gehenna. In Gehenna, the easiest way I can describe this to you, uh, now I've never been in jail, I've never been in prison, um, whether you have or you haven't, doesn't really matter at this point, but I'm going to use that as an illustration. When you look at county jail, you're locked up, you have handcuffs, you're put in a cell or maybe in a big room with other prisoners, but you really haven't been sentenced yet. You've maybe been charged with a crime and you are locked up for that crime, but you haven't been charged yet. You haven't been found guilty and sentenced yet. That would really be uh, a good description for Hades. That would be Sheol. That would be what we think of hell to this day. If people die today, they don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That is where they are. It is the same punishment. It is the same things that you go through. It is the same things as Gehenna, but Gehenna is final. So the easiest way to describe that, that would be uh, like after you've been charged and found guilty with the crime, and now you have a life sentence. So that's the easiest way to describe it. Hopefully that makes sense to people. So it's like a difference between county jail and federal prison. Gehenna is the final. In all of the details of it, they are the same thing. It's just not a final because the final judgment has not been made yet. One of the things that I want us to understand today, you can go to the next slide. Some of the different aspects of what hell is that we can understand. The first aspect that we need to understand is that hell is eternal. It is forever It is not like some of those teachings from some of the different religions that talk about, hey, you're going to be annihilated and then you'll just cease to exist. The Bible, this is just two scriptures that I pulled out to illustrate what the Bible says about it lasting for eternity. Matthew 25, verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Pretty straightforward. Not a whole lot that you can pick apart or you could argue on that. Revelations 14, 11. 
and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now, that one obviously is in the context of Revelation. It's in the context of the end times. But it's illustrating the same thing. If we go to the next slide, another aspect of hell. Hell is separation from God. We talk about this. We throw this around a lot. But if you really sat and thought about that in and of itself is a terrible punishment to be separated from God. We take that for granted. We can worship God. We can talk to him on a daily basis. We have his word. But you're separated from God. Second Thessalonians 1 verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. We have eternal again. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I don't know about you, but that frightens me. I don't want to be separated from God. I don't want to be separated from my Father. We go to the next aspect of hell. It's a place of fire and burning sulfur. Revelation 20, 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This would be Gehenna. This would be the end. This would be the final judgment. Revelation 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Again, that is talking about Gehenna, the final uh, punishment for those who don't have Christ as their Lord and Savior. Another uh, translation says the cowardly, the unbelievers, not just the faithless, but the unbelievers, those that don't have Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is what they are destined for. Another thing that's, that I never would have learned this if I hadn't studied it, but sulfur, the smell of sulfur, is something very interesting here. Not only do you have flames and torment and all these things, but according to research, we know that our sense of smell adapts. So you think about this. What do I mean by that? Uh, my son, uh, if he dirties his diaper, it smells pretty bad. My wife would tell you that's because he takes after me. <laughs> Now, if I let that sit, if it goes 20 minutes or 30 minutes, my sense of smell, the way God created us, will adjust, and I will not smell that smell. Now, if my wife comes in from work and says, oh my goodness, it, what's that smell? Is that you or Nathan? <laughs> Always blame it on Nathan. Or Chase. That's the other one, that did, the dog. But, but because she has not adapted to that smell... It's going to be fresh. It's going to be there, whereas I've adapted to that smell. The human body does this. However, they found there's one compound that the human body cannot adjust its smell to. It's the smell of sulfur. Kind of that rotten egg smell that we smell from time to time. So it may not seem like a big deal in this earthly setting that we're in, but when you think about eternity, when you think about forever, when you think about how God created us, and out of all the elements in the world, the one thing that our nose and our body cannot adjust to is the smell of sulfur. But there is no God, that's right. That's just happenstance. That just came out of nothing. The next place that hell is, it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
This is something that has been said seven times in the New Testament. Matthew 13, 41 to 42. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think it's safe to say we all understand what weeping is. Crying. Gnashing of teeth. Not something that we necessarily use in everyday language. I've found two different versions of this or two different interpretations but I believe both of them uh, fit this cause. The first one, gnashing of teeth, would be the gritting of your teeth. You think about it if you stub your toe, if you hit your finger with a hammer, the first instinct you have is, oh, you clench your teeth because you're in pain. But that's something that goes on forever. <laughs> it's not a, I hit my finger, I stub my toe, oh, it hurts for 10 seconds, and then I go back to normal again. The other interpretation of this is that it would be more comfortable to us to bite the tip of our tongue than it would be to endure the pain and anguish that you're going through. I don't know about you, but I've never been happy about biting my tongue. <laughs> it's never been, oh, that feels good. I'm glad that I bit my tongue. It's a terrible thing to think about. This is what people are going to endure forever. The fifth thing that I want us to get from is that it is a place of torment. Luke 16, 23, right here in the story that we read, the rich man in Lazarus and in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. It is a place of eternal torment, never ending torment. We talk about maybe some of the practices of the military and some of the different ways that we can get information from people. Listen, there's going to be nothing compared to the torment that people will experience in hell. Not even close. The sixth and final one. It says that it's a place where the worm never dies. Mark chapter 9, verses 47 and 48. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, two trains of thought on this passage of scripture. One group of people will say, well, this is all figurative language. This is just to illustrate how terrible it will be. I can accept that. But if, also, if I take the literal translation of this, you think about it, when we die, we get put in a box. We get put in a coffin. If you've ever seen any of those CSI shows or any of the movies where somehow they have to go back years later and dig up a body to bring them back, to study it, to try to find DNA, whatever the cause may be. We understand that there is no flesh on that body. It is a box of bones. So what happens is we rot. We don't think about this, but we rot in that box. And there's a, a little worms, little larvae, if you will, that will eat the flesh. And that's why when we go back years later and you open up the box, there's nothing but bones. They've eaten everything. Now, this scripture says that the worm does not die. What does that mean? I can't give you a good answer for that. Does that mean that somehow, some way, spiritually, our, our body is just never decomposed, that we're just in torment forever of these worms that die? Or maybe it's just so many worms that the worms, or so many people in hell, that the worms don't die? I, I don't have a sufficient answer for you on that. 
I would challenge you to research that yourself. But the point of this, we can see that the Word of God says the worm doesn't die. Again, just to illustrate the fact, this is a horrible place. The best Stephen King movie or novel hasn't even come close to how terrible hell is going to be. And we as believers, we go through our daily walks, we go through our everyday lives, never really thinking about the consequence or what's going to happen to people who don't know Christ. And, and I can understand, I've done it myself, because we don't think about it. We're born-again believers. We love Jesus. We're chasing after Him. And our destiny is an eternity in heaven. But listen, if we could grasp, if we could understand how terrible hell is going to be, we'd walk on our hands and knees across town just to tell one person about Jesus Christ. If we had a greater understanding as the church as a whole, not just Grace Christian Fellowship, but the church in America, the church in the world, if we could understand and comprehend how terrible of a place hell will be, evangelism would be a non-issue for us. We couldn't help but talk to every person that we see because of the burden of knowing this information, of knowing the destiny these people have in their life, the destruction that they're going to run into. We know there's no other name under heaven that what, for which we must be saved. That's Jesus Christ and Him alone. Those of us that have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we're children of God, it is our duty to share the gospel. It is our duty to understand the gravity of hell. And most importantly, it's our duty to warn people of what's coming for them if they don't confess and believe. It's something when I first started to look at hell, really changed my life. It gives you a sense of urgency. There's people that die every day that thought they had 10, 20, 30 years left on this earth. There's people that we come into contact every day that we think, I got next week, I got two weeks, I got years before I have to worry about them. They're still young, I don't have to worry about it. I'm not going to share the gospel with them quite yet. We're not promised tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen from the next day to the next day, but we do know what happens to people who die without Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised them from the dead, we would be saved. Saved from what? Saved from eternity in hell. Separated from God in torment. We don't accept Christ as an as a easy pass, as a, hey, I'm just going to pray this prayer so that I don't have to worry about hell. It's not that. It's much deeper than that. It's not a magic prayer that we say, and then we go on about our lives with no change. That's not the way it works. If things haven't changed in your life since you've given your life to Jesus Christ, I would question whether or not you truly were born again. You say, wow, you're judging me. Yes, I am. Just be honest about it. Because the Bible says we judge a tree by the fruit it bears. Our lives should be changing. Our lives should be conforming to the image of Christ. Our minds should be conforming to the image of Christ. Our thoughts, our feelings should change. But the great thing about it is this is the thing that never changes, God's Word. And so maybe you're in here today. I'm not going to do the formal altar call that I've done the last few times. And I'm doing that for a reason, because I want people to understand 
that even though an altar call is not wrong, you won't find an altar call in the Bible. At least not the way that we do it today. Now in the book of Acts, there was a way that they found out that three, four, five thousand people were saved in a day. So there was some form, some way that they were able to, you know, I'm sure they maybe didn't have cards to fill out back then. <laughs> I don't know if they had, each had a slate and they had to ding, 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 ding. I don't know. Could be a lot of different ways that they did it. But somehow, some way, the church was able to find out that these people gave their hearts to the Lord and then they discipled them. They, they, they made those, them learners of Christ. They didn't just say, hey, great, you prayed the prayer, it's magic, you're good, now go back to living your life. And so just like that verse said, you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth, you are saved. You don't have to say a long, drawn-out prayer. But listen, the only way that I know to talk to God is through prayer. So an altar call with a prayer is not wrong. You may not find it in Scripture, but I also want you to understand the, the ease, the simplicity of salvation. If you are sharing Christ with somebody that comes down to that moment, hey, this person says they want to receive Christ, and now you panic. Man, I don't remember that prayer. I don't remember all the things that they said. I don't want to mess it up. And so you don't do it for fear of messing it up. Listen, it's as simple as you believe and you confess. If somebody stands before you and they say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that in my heart. Guess what? They're born again. It's done. It's simple. It's, it's as easy as that. They are born again believer according to Romans 10, 9, and 10. You say, well, they didn't say a prayer. They confess it with their mouth. They believe it in their heart. Now, only time will tell. The fruit of their life will tell whether or not they really met it in their heart. It's not necessarily something for us to worry about. Our job is to share the gospel, and that's it. As I mentioned the last time I preached, it's the Holy Spirit that draws people to salvation. So there may be somebody in here tonight, I, I, just, I speak a lot at night, that's why I say tonight, it's, it's the morning. <laughs> but I, I know pretty much most of every one of you, uh, uh, at least to a certain degree, and so maybe everyone in here is born again, they're a child of God, that's awesome, that's great. But there may be somebody in here that says, you know what, I, I never really did it, or when I did do that, I kind of thought of it as a magical prayer. I didn't really commit my heart and my life to God, I didn't surrender my heart, my mind, my soul to God. I said some words and I meant it in my heart. But my head is a different story. <laughs> it's like the verse, the guy that says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. He believed it in his heart, but his head was where he was having the stumbling block. We need to have our minds conform to Christ. So if you're in here tonight, you've never, again, I say tonight, I apologize. If you're in here and you've never received Christ, it's as simple as saying, Jesus Christ, I believe you're the Son of God. Be my Lord and Savior. You're born again. And if you did that today, then I want to encourage you, before you leave today, come up here and talk to myself, talk to one of the elders about what you did. Because there's no such thing as a closet Christian. And frankly, I would venture to say that everybody else is coming out of the closet now, so it's time for the Christians to come out of the closet as well. <laughs> Sounds harsh, but it's the truth. And also, I said this yesterday at at the ministry opportunity we're at, there's no such thing as I'm kind of Christian. It's like saying you're kind of pregnant. It doesn't make sense. You either are or you aren't. So I challenge you. If that's you today, make sure you stop up here. You come up here, pull one of the leadership aside and just say, hey, you know what? I, I did this. I need to get my heart right with God. 
you know, I asked Christ to be my Lord and Savior this morning to let somebody know. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of salvation. I thank you that you offered us a way that we don't have to experience any of those horrible, horrible things in hell. Lord, I thank you that that was not created for us. That was created for Satan and his demons. I thank you for the fact that you give us a choice on who we want to serve. Lord, I pray that we would understand as a church body the gravity of the situation, the gravity of how real hell is and how terrible of a place it would be. That we could grasp that, that we could understand it, we could apply it, so it would give us more urgency to share the gospel with our friends, our family, with the people we come in contact with. Lord, help us to be soul winners. Help us to share the love of Christ and to be bold for you. In Jesus' name, amen. I have one last quote. Josh McDowell, a great author, great preacher, says a lot of people say, well, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? First of all, God doesn't send anyone to hell. If we go to hell, it's by our own choice. But when somebody says to me, how can a loving God allow anyone to go to hell? I'll turn around and say, well, how can a holy, just, righteous God allow sin into his presence? It's very well said. And that's what I wanted to leave you with. I don't know about any uh, carbohydrates. I guess I'll leave that up to you. You want to close it out? Invite people. All right, he wants me to close it out. So I invite any of you. I guess there's some things over there. There might be, there may not be. But the one thing that you can do is go back there and talk to some people. Have some great fellowship while you're here. Again, if there's anybody here that's never prayed to receive Christ, you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't leave this building without doing business with God. We're dismissed.